You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Google response number 69. J.P. Yates, Futurist. Future World Conference, Johannesburg. Text of keynote speech. Description, popular futurist jumps off bandwagon he helped create. I realized this morning over breakfast with a prostitute with whom I did not have sex, who was a better human being than all of us, that I've spent a good portion of my life seeking the approval of people I can't stand, including myself. The truth is, I know nothing, understand nothing. I try. I am not lazy. But the more I try to understand something, the more intertwined and complex it seems. The more I realize I am out of the proverbial loop, the literal loop, the existential loop. The more I think of things, the more I question whether anyone is properly looped. In fact, I challenge the very existence of the loop, proverbial, literal, or metaphorical. So this is a fundamental problem, being out of a loop that I don't even believe in. Most books or movies or creation myths have a hero who knows all there is to know about at least one thing, and he uses that gift to overcome an obvious and blatantly evil adversary. He has insider knowledge, special gifts, ingenious ways of getting to the core of things, the answer, the solution, the truth. He knows what's right and wrong. He knows what's next. And he knows what to do about it. I don't. I don't understand the present, let alone the fucking future. Yet we claim to understand, pretend to, some actually believe it, that they do know. You know the people, the ones who talk about things with such cocksure passion that you think, shit, maybe they do know. Maybe they really do. They speak in absolutes, blacks and whites. They speak with soothing partisan simplicity. They speak with their hands and use PowerPoint like a sword. They quote people you ought to know more about. They work on a privileged higher plane and posit their views with a condescending subterranean confidence, convincing you not to worry that forces are at work on other levels, levels that simple folks like us cannot even begin to fathom. So it's best not to worry your little head about it and trust them the experts, that this is the way, the way it is, and the way it will be. People get rich and powerful operating this way, perpetuating the myth of the uber level, the exclusive loop, dispensing their wisdom and opinions and edicts to the masses, breaking down the conflicting moral, political, and economic issues of 52 billion people into a binary proposition, yes or no, war or peace, good or bad, with us or against us, Ginger or Marianne. Presidents work on this level, and dictators, talk show hosts, professional wrestlers, actresses on the steps of the Capitol, conservatives, liberals, the members of VFW Post 442, CEOs, Madison Avenue, Wall Street, Sesame Street. They're all in the loop, all working at another level. I'm not. I don't believe in the sacred loop or the secret level. In fact, the more people claim to absolutely know, the more clueless and insecure they absolutely are. Of course, I can't be sure of this. Which brings me to us and to me. Who do we think we are? Who did I think I was? How can I call myself a futurist when I miss the most cataclysmic event of our time? How can I predict tomorrow when the world is on fire today? How did I see reality TV coming but miss this? And let's be honest, we all did. We all make these pronouncements, but none of us ever goes back to check on their accuracy. 
Shit, if the people in this room were right just 1% of the time, we'd all be telecommuting from Tahiti, eating dinner in pill form, and having literal sex with our virtual selves. But if you talk shit long enough, sooner or later, you may actually be right. And if by some fluke that is the case, watch out, because any successful prediction is always followed by the cannibalistic scramble for credit, the blood grab to brand an original thought as your own. We all want to be the first to be there to identify a click moment, but we live in a world that may never click again. We're great at telling people the future they need to buy into instead of the present they ought to be making the most of. And what's hilarious is that we all believe it, that we are geniuses, that we are all responsible for and deserving of our wealth, more deserving of the privileged life than, say, a teacher or a mason, a cleric or a hot dog vendor, despite the fact that 99% of us did not create our good fortune, the markets did, or luck, or heredity. I believed it, but not anymore. You see, we may be able to identify cool, but we can never invent it. Cool is never manufactured. You never try to be cool. It happens. Same goes for goodness and truth. And the only truth I know is that I know nothing. And even though you may dress the part, the Masoni scarves, the yellow jumpsuits, the tiny glasses, the all-whites, the all-blacks, the Nehru's, the sandals, the glittering gadgets, none of you know anything either. Sorry about that. We are not innovators. We're fucking abominations. To paraphrase someone smarter than me, who still knows nothing, the philosophical task of our age is for each of us to decide what it means to be a successful human being. I don't know the answer to that, but I would like to find out. In the meantime, I know absolutely zilch. I am the founding father of the Coalition of the Clueless. James P. Othner was an executive creative director at the advertising firm Young and Rubicam. His short story, The Futurist, was a finalist for the National Magazine Award in Fiction. The story was an excerpt from his first novel, also titled The Futurist. Welcome to the program, Jim. Thank you, Rick. Jim, let's talk a little bit about Yates, your main character in this novel. He's a futurist, but he doesn't have a first name, does he? No, he doesn't. No big secret there. I just like the fact that he, he was a one-name person and that people kind of spoke to him and of him in such a way that, oh, there's Yates again, uh, that Yates guy. So I, I thought almost giving him a first name would almost give him too much, too much heart, too much, too much of a soul at first, especially. He does start off as being a rather unlikable character. Tell us how you managed to get past his kind of repugnant qualities. Uh, as an author, I, I had no problem getting past it. As a reader, I know some people have, had, have wrestled with that, and at certain points I think his morally despicable nature gives people trouble. And I think some people want to sympathize with a reader or see a bit of themselves in them. With Yates, it gets a little hard, and then even when you do see a little bit of yourself in Yates, I think it makes you even more uneasy. Uh, as a writer, though, it's something that I I uh, reveled in. I thought it was hilarious that his job was to try to make sense of this world kind of turned upside down. A futurist circa 1990-something might have been more celebrated and more ha been having more fun and not been as morally conflicted because every three months your 401k plan was doubling and the NASDAQ was skyrocketing and the internet was going to change our lives forever. But this guy was charged with trying to make sense of, of a quite different world. And I thought that bad for humanity, good for uh, humorous fiction. 
<laughs> Tell us a little bit about how your career as an advertising executive informs this novel. Uh, there's definitely, it definitely informed quite a bit of the novel, and the irony is that uh, for, for quite a long time I had tried to, I had been writing fiction, I had some success with short fiction, I had some uh, novels that were uh, rejected with great reviews and great rejection letters. Uh, so I had always wanted to be a writer. I had always been writing fiction, um, and I had resented at certain times the fact that my advertising career uh, was taking away so much of my creative energy, and I would go home and you know curse about this account or the fact that I had to travel or work another night or work another weekend. The irony is that when I did come upon this character and this line, the futurist, and the futurist never saw it coming. I got terribly excited, and I realized that all of the experiences that I had uh, had as an advertising person, and I was a fairly senior-level person for a while, I had been able to meet the likes of Nicholas Negroponte of the MIT Media Lab, Watts Wacker, uh, four-star generals, Laurie Anderson, George Plimpton, uh, just an incredible array of people, and Never put them in my ads, but I was actually able to pick their brain. So I would more often than not just ask a lot of questions, uh, look into the the moral and ethical aspects of whatever account I was working on. And here I realized here's an opportunity for a character uh, who had to kind of compromise a great bit of himself every day to, to write about that character. Was I a futurist? No. Uh, did I have times when I questioned what I was doing with myself or looking at the absurdities of, uh, of what it meant to be in big-time, big-money advertising? Absolutely. Tell us a little bit. One of the things that's interesting about this book is that it uses some of the techniques of the advertising industry to satire, not the advertising industry itself, but our culture, and especially the culture of the, the talking heads and the consultants. Did you meet, how many of these people did you meet like, like uh, Yates? I never met Faith Popcorn. I, I heard her speak. I've read her books. But I, I had met quite a bit of people, George Gilder, Watts Wacker. I had been to conferences where for creative people or creative directors, they would have a futurist speak, and, and some were terrific. Most of them were were very provocative and would keep you engaged and lead you to just play things out and say, well, what if this happened? What if it did happen? What would be the moral implications? What would be the social implications? It's the futurists who uh, who would talk in edicts or would talk in absolutes or would have, you know, PowerPoints that told you exactly how things were going to be that I was amused by, wary of, and uh, highly skeptical of. Uh, so I, I met quite a few. Most of them I found thoroughly engaging and provocative Quite a few also, though, I, I thought were just, you know, blowing smoke. Maybe at one point or another of their career, they were good at what they did, but uh, I thought they were walking through the steps, not terribly good at what they did. One of the things about these experts is that they're useful if, if they're dependable. If, they, if you know what, if you're consulting a futurist, one of these kind of experts, one of the reasons you consult them is because you know they're going to show up they're going to have something done, and it's going to be targeted towards what what you want. So tell us a little bit about how that plays out in this book, how this futurist, how Yates, is able to turn himself essentially into a chameleon to predict the future that people want to see. Well, at one point, Yates, like many people, like many nations, was 
full of promise. He was talented. He had the ear of people who mattered. And he said things that he believed in about science, about art, about the future of certain corporations and how they had the ability to do good. But as time went on and his market for corporations and other people who wanted to hear that kind of thing dwindled, he found that he had to modify his speech, his delivery. He fought it at times and was threatened with unemployment. And he decided to play along and sell out. And he would do things like speak before the Organic Farmers of America on a Monday and tell them that their future has never looked brighter. And then on a Wednesday, go before the leading pesticide manufacturer and renounce organic farming and tell them that what they're doing is wonderful and right and to stay the course. He would do things like be approached by the New York Times to write an essay on the future of literacy, and he would have his assistant ghostwrite it. So he was fairly despicable, and whoever would pay. He would talk to people about the future of porn and then go get on a flight and hop off and talk to seminary students about the future of God and to a certain extent have no feelings of guilt at all until he sort of self-destructs at this Future World Conference and tries to rid himself of the guilt and isn't completely successful at that. Tell us a little bit about, let's kind of explore the setup of the book. As the novel starts, he's at the acme of his career and he's the keynote speaker at the Future World Conference. And he has kind of a crisis. So tell us a little bit what, about how the book plays out from there. I guess the, the guilt has been welling up inside him, but he didn't want to face it. But we, on his way to Future World in Johannesburg, he has uh, multiple things happen, con- kind of conscience dwellers that, that send him into a tailspin, the first of which is his girlfriend of several years who has just had grown sick of his self-absorption and his fixation with what's next and sort of sees through what his his career has become. She tells him via a handwritten note, intentional irony there, that she's leaving the futurist for a sixth grade history teacher. So that sets him off a bit and gets him drinking. And when he gets to Johannesburg, he continues his his drinking and he goes to a soccer game, which is quite important in South Africa that afternoon. He was unaware of that he was supposed to go to the game or even that the, that he was supposed to weigh in on, on the future of soccer in Johannesburg. But he witnesses a soccer riot there. And at first he thinks it's just some spectacle, so, like the wave or some kind of third world fan enthusiasm taken a little bit too far, but it's actually a bloody soccer riot. More than 40 people die. He's clearly shaken by that. And when he's on the field at the end of the soccer riot, he's, he's expecting everyone to be as traumatized as he is, yet he's asked by the host, do you think that this will affect our chances to host the World Cup here in two years? So everyone in this book, to a certain extent, has a price, has a goal, is willing to compromise certain things to get what they want. And he is has had been for years the person who helped these people reach their kind of tawdry means. And with the opening speech that you read, he seeks to sabotage his career, but instead manages to enhance it, doesn't he? Yeah. And I, every time, one of the things that's funny about never being published is that I got to a certain point where I realized, uh, I told my wife, you're never going to get published. Thanks for supporting me. I, I told my wife that that's what I finally realized, and I'm going to write what I want, and I'm going to take chances, and I'm going to go with this kind of wise-ass, staccato, 
information-laden voice of mine that I had never used before. And, and once I found it, it was just a hoot, and I loved it. And every time I thought I should have done something that would have a traditional plot turn, I would step back and say, well, that never worked for you before. Why don't you do what you really feel? And so he gives this kind of Jerry Maguire-like speech where you, you think at the end of it he's, he's seen the light, he's going to change, he's renounced his profession, he's, he's belittled the other people in the audience, and here we go. Where's the book going to go now? We're going to have a, a futurist driven to do good. Yet he doesn't do good. He's immediately praised for the speech because of the honesty. He gets a million hits on his website because people love the coalition of the clueless. They think it's an amazing insight. And on top of that, he's recruited by these shadow quasi-governmental people who like the fact that he, he's a sellout. They like the fact that he's popular, and they like the fact that he sort of has his finger on the, uh, the, the what would be the bad pulse of the world, the, the, just the, the kind of dwindling moral pulse of, pulse of the world. And they decide they want to recruit him and send him out to find out what the world thinks of America, not because they want to write a book about it, not because they want to use that information for any moral or social good, they want to use that information for profit. He sent out to find out why they hate us, essentially. Now, one of the, the first thing I thought when I saw encountered this plot, I said, well, you know, James used to work in advertising. That's why they hate us. <laughs> Did you ever think about that? I think advertising and globalization is a mat you know, that's an incredible hot topic right now. I think they hate us and, and it's again the administration, some of our, our politics. But we are a culture that consumes these things. We're the culture that elected this administration. So if you're gonna point at advertising or point at a certain politician, you have to kind of step back and say, Well, even though, you know, only 49% of us did elect this person. We're still the, the culture that buys all these things, that, that kind of is oblivious to a lot of our, our global policies. And uh, it, again, they, they sort of knew why people hated us, but they wanted to, to glean even deeper insights and, again, leverage those insights for profit and for amoral reasons. In your time working with Young and Rubicam, did you ever do any advertising for the Army or the Navy or the government? Because they do quite a bit of advertising. Yes. Here's, here's a good, uh, here's the iPad, I, <laughs> the podcast one. I never did do advertising for the Army. I had, they lost the Army account, and I'm not sure why. I had been at two agencies that had the Army account. Uh, one was NWR, which is now out of business, but they were an old agency that had the U.S. Army. As soon as I got there, the Army account left, so I don't know if that was good or bad because at that stage of my career, I don't know what I would have done if I had been asked to work on it because I needed a job, I had children, I had a mortgage, and we weren't at war. So the the uh, the, the kind of moral questions of sending an 18-year-old overseas to, to uh, fight in some, some questionable uh, action wasn't really there then. But several years ago, I had already... Uh, contracted to sell this book. The first chapter had already been published, but I was still at my agency, and I was asked to join in on a pitch, which means one of many agencies that were trying to get this gazillion-dollar United States Army account. And I was one of the senior-level creatives at the agency, and I always had a good take on things. So they invited me to sit in on a, a meeting with a consultant, and it was pretty much me and about four other people. And the consultant had formerly been the highest-ranking uh, 
officer in the United States Army, and he was just telling us what it was like, what the situation was in Iraq, what the dilemma was facing the Army as far as recruitment goals and what they were willing and not willing to do, what we should and shouldn't say. And part of me was sitting there saying, well, shit, you're not going to get this uh, this kind of education in the Iowa Writers Workshop. It was just amazing. And then, you know, the the other evil part of me on my shoulder was saying, maybe you should just stay here and run with this for a few months and you have yourself book two already written because I'm trying to, I'm struggling with what exactly to do next. And I said, this could just be an amazing thing, you know, get inside, uh, you know, the, the inner machinations of the army. And uh, then the other part of me just said, what are you crazy? This is, this is uh, the last thing in the world you want on your shoulders. I feel guilty enough selling uh, sugar laden yogurt to little kids sometimes, <laughs> uh, let alone, you know, sending an 18 year old to Fallujah. Uh, so I sat in on it, and like many of the of the really talented, morally responsible people who work in advertising, lots of people at YNR said, "You know what? I can't work on this." So there's one level of uh, making a, a supposedly sound moral choice: I won't work on a war account or a military account. Yet, had we gotten the business and I wasn't working on it, there's another moral choice: Do you want to work at an agency whose main account uh, is is the United States Army? I had already made one choice. I worked at an agency whose one of their major uh, clients was a uh, tobacco corporation. So I refused to sell tobacco. I refused to write ads. But down the hall, there was a group that had no problem with it. And I'm sure their uh, successes affected the bottom line and affected people's bonuses. But I I think just about everyone in every profession can step back and say, what are the deeper roots of every moral choice I'm doing? You know, I may think I'm on the high ground, but if I buy this from this company or if I shop in this store or if I, uh, if I burn this, this amount of gas in this kind of vehicle, it's not as black and white and people uh, are living in the gray area a little bit more than most are willing to admit. And I find it funny sometimes that attorneys and advertising people are singled out because I think we, we reflect maybe just because they're a little bit more visible but they're reflecting the nature of a society that that condones and is confronted with these kinds of choices themselves every day. One of the fascinating aspects of this is the notions of communications in here. There's lots of different forms of communications. You talk about people IMing, email, people phones, writing letters. Tell us a little bit about how the very means by which we communicate affect the message, how the medium affects the message? Well, I actually wrote a line for U.S. West years ago when I was working on a telecom account, and it was about life's better here, and and we were always trying to say what, what are the implications of, of this kind of digital society, and, and one of the lines that kind of really resonated with people was here, a handshake still beats an email, and, you know, the, the cowboy way, and people, you know, we look people in the eye, and, and it's, it, nothing can beat this face-to-face conversation. And by no means am I an expert on digital communication and what's what's great and what's not great, but it's it's what we do. If you're traveling, you you email. You have your own MySpace if you're of a certain age, and it can be incredibly liberating and and incredibly freeing to to just jot down a note to someone whom you never would have picked up the phone to call, and the note is is something that you can think about and contemplate and and edit if you'd like to. I know some people just write phonetically and there's a whole other kind of grammar that goes with you know are you for this and 
but uh, I, I see the good and bad in just about every aspect of digital communications. So where is it all going? I, I don't know. Um, in the book, Yates finds out his father dies via email, and the irony of that is uh, his father hated the Internet, so he, he's forced to think about this Luddite father who really renounced the Internet and the fact that his son made a fortune championing such things. He finds out about this man's death via an email in a place as remote as Fiji. Satellite TV is beaming back stories of a space hotel that's about to crash to Yates, and it's driving him crazy. It's another thing that's that's really weighing on his conscience because he had, in in effect, helped endorse the space hotel, and uh, the the rich people on board are dying. And and everywhere he goes, even in Fiji, even in Milan, even in Greenland, when he he uh, sits down, and the TV clicks on, there's live coverage of the space hotel. So, it's everywhere, and uh, I think the questions are remain unanswered about the good and the bad. It's it's basically personal choices. How much do you want to uh, embed yourself into that lifestyle? When can you shut it off? When will it help you? When is it becoming addictive? One of the notions that in, in this book I found interesting as well was selling America, selling the notion of democracy, the free market, the people who don't understand it. That's part of this book. Tell us a little bit about how that plays out. It Basically, what Yates is doing is research to find out how how to do this, isn't he? Yes. I guess everything is a brand. A politician is a brand. He's focus-grouped. He's, uh, he's, he's polled. How, how are his numbers? How are things doing? It's very much, you know, who, who's got the best Q score? So it's, it's, there's clearly analogous. It's clearly analogous to advertising and marketing. And what, what surprised me, and this is pre-Karen Hughes, this was, uh, there was a woman, Charlotte Beers, who was the chairwoman of Ogilvy & Mather, who was charged with elevating the, the brand, Ameri- brand America to the, to the third world. And she approached it in a very, you know, advertising-type way. They, they made videos. They were talking about having a, a channel called Brand America. And uh, I don't know that that ever got off the ground. I know that several months ago, Karen Hughes was recruited to, to take up the cause once, to, once again. And the book had already been written. I was getting notes from my editor saying, this is scary because she's here's this woman who really has no no sense of the third world uh, or no right to tell the third world what to think of us going overseas on our behalf trying to sell brand America it was already the book was already written when that happened I thought it was very funny I, I also think it's really troubling how unsophisticated the government is in that respect thinking that you could just go in do a PowerPoint have a have a video like a ripomatic that someone would do in advertising like a brand essence video talking about you know here's all the good things that Americans do and the things that we can do in the world and it's just incredibly naive and insulting as Karen Hughes soon found out in in uh, Saudi Arabia when she was uh, speaking to a bunch of Saudi women and telling them you know they ought to demand the right to drive and some of them just said we don't want to drive, you know? <laughs> who are you? And even if we did, who are you to tell us that we demand to drive? We're really happy with our life. I, I found that just very funny and troubling that, that it was so naive and so simplistic, the approach. And real marketers do it much more differently. They try to... <laughs> so, so there is a way to do it. And, and one way is to try to uh, learn about your, your demographic before you go in and shove your product down their throat. And it's, it's really crass to even talk about something ideological like this, but, but I find it troubling that, you know, and, and as, as with Yates, the main character in the book here, uh, 
he knew nothing about the world that he was speaking to. He knew a very U.S.-centric vision of things. People would defer to him. People would listen to him because he was American and because he was rich. And he, he looked out at the world through a window in the back of a limo that would only go two-thirds of the way down and was tinted, and certainly there's symbolism there. And I, I think that we were guilty and still are guilty as, of a society, as a society of not knowing enough about what other countries are all about before we go try to uh, force what we're all about upon them. I, I have to agree. I think it's pretty amazing that the country that invented Madison Avenue doesn't really seem to know how to use it to its own advantage. You keep thinking that there's, uh, and people would, would always ask me, like, is there a sublim- subliminal department in your agency? And I go, I would say, not that I know of. Um, I, I, I think you're giving people way too much credit for stuff like that. It's There's not time. Uh, there's not enough energy or manpower to do things like that. And it's it's uh, done on a very simple level. I, you would think, you know, maybe there was some CIA group that did it really well. Maybe there is, and we don't know about it, but whoever it is, it's not working right now. One of the things I found interesting in this novel was the sets of moral counterweights that you have set up as characters for Yates. There's Campbell, uh, who's uh, the millionaire who's decided that all he wants to do is watch glaciers fall in Greenland. There's Blevins, Marjorie, Lauren, his mother, his father, Johnson & Johnson. Tell us a little bit about creating these counterweights and how you scripted and architected the novel in terms of this. Well, I think when someone is in a tailspin and they're questioning their own their own place in the universe, they see what they want to see in others. And, and the people that he was encountering, starting with Blevins, who's his kind of uh, Jiminy Cricket-like assistant, a very well-intentioned younger person who had idolized Yeats from years back and, and would do anything for him, but has grown increasingly frustrated by Yeats's sellout. He sort of represents the third world. He would love for Yeats to speak out on AIDS in Africa, on uh, globalization, uh, the invisible poor. He has all these topics that he would like Yeats to talk about. So he's sort of a corporate uh, conscience figure that, that tries to keep reminding this character, it's not too late, you can always redeem your soul through your job and do things that are altruistic rather than profit-driven. His father is, is, a, is a Luddite. He's a carpenter. He's a craftsman. He took great—we never do meet his father uh, in the book, but there's, there's talk of him and communication with him. His father loved to look at the stars and ponder the universe. He was a fan of Roberto Clemente because he was a, he was a ball player who went about his work quietly with grace and did everything well. And uh, his father— didn't like like so many parents whose whose children work in the digital field or or in in uh, new media, or or in in anything that uh, has more than three words in the title. His parents really had no idea what the heck he did for a living. And it, actually, at one point, Yates consults for a firm called Here's What I Do Mom dot com, where people explain to uh, the parents of of people with complicated jobs what their children do for a living. It was a website, and and parents don't understand what their children are doing, that they they sacrifice the generation and and, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to put them through college. So his father was baffled by by what he did and kind of disapproved of what he did because, again, he was on to what Yates was all about, and he sensed that his son uh, was selling out. Faith Popcorn busts Yates in the first chapter. She she knows he's a sham. He feels it. He, He looks away from her. He averts her gaze because she's the mother of all legitimate futurists and 
he knows that so, so his his industry is on to him. They realize that he doesn't have the real goods, yet he still makes a good living. His coworker is on to him and wants him to do better. His father just questions what he's doing with his life and himself overall. And then Marjorie is a woman who he meets a a prostitute who is white, who's a victim of racism in South Africa, which is uh, steeped in irony, but actually based on truth. And uh, she is another kind of conscience figure. And what, what Marjorie does is she basically says, why don't you stop bullshitting and tell the truth? And she is incredibly frank with him, and he's not used to people, people being so frank with him. So they have a bond there in that she's, she's telling it like it is to, to someone who's used to uh, having people bow in front of him. Now, I talked to Faith Popcorn shortly before this interview, and she was telling me a little bit. Of, she she loved the book. Great. And, <laughs> so I can take the bulletproof vest off now. You can take the bulletproof vest on. She's called off the hit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the things she was telling me about was just the the actual industry of futurism. Um, and it was it's pretty interesting. She has like eighty consultants, thirty five hundred people around the world. Tell us a little, little bit about how you created your character. In, in terms of faith, popcorn, and your choice to bring in a real futurist into the into the novel, I'm not an expert on futurism, so I, I and and I think that was to my benefit because I didn't want Yates to be a faith popcorn because that's an industry unto itself. I think she's her her place in the pantheon of futurists is secure. Here's a woman who. Uh, she she branded things like cocooning and said things like a woman doesn't women don't buy into brands they join them and it's like a cultural thing and and she had brilliant insights over the years yates i i wanted to be someone who who actually wasn't following the traditional futurist path he kind of stepped into it he had a couple of lucky moments and he's just riding this thing out so part of my research was a lack of research uh i chose not to delve too deeply into it. Of course, I was aware of the Malcolm Gladwells and the Freakonomics and the Faith Popcorns. I, I would read anything that was uh, provocative, the Wired, Ma- I, the people from Wired Magazine and, and the Stuart Brands and uh, the Luddite perspective. I loved all of that, but I, I wanted Yates to be someone who is one step away from being exposed every step of the way through this novel. So I, I didn't give him too big of a staff I didn't. Uh, I de- I definitely made a conscious effort not to not to make him uh, not to try to have verisimilitude as to what real futurists do. I just created his own kind of way of life and his own his own way of being, um, and that that carried over into the way he looked at the world. I did research. I traveled. I didn't go to Greenland, but I traveled to everywhere else in the book and. I'm lucky because I didn't live in Fiji for six months or I didn't live in Milan, but I saw enough of it to write through Yates's eyes. And Yates is someone who has a very superficial perspective of things. So if I got something wrong in Greenland or if I got something wrong uh, I'm sh- about surfing in Fiji, I'm sure someone's going to bust me on it and uh, write in, you know, Nemotu left you know, actually doesn't break on the reef. It breaks off the beach. I tried, but the good part was Yates wasn't very wasn't paying a lot of attention to the world, so so I could get away with that. For my next book, I'm going to have to do a little bit better with the research and spend more time in these places. I'd like to talk a little bit about your prose style. Books written in the present tense, it's kind of unusual, isn't it? Yes. 
And what what drove that decision? It, I, I read, it seems really appropriate. It, it seemed appropriate. It's it's about futurism. I know uh, some someone got really upset about it, and someone who works at a college newspaper. Not that I read Google myself every day. I just actually I do, but it's, <laughs> well, it's, it's appropriate. My fir- it's my first book, and I've been trying for a long time. What what can I say? Uh, just railed on when to use the present tense and why. Who do I think I am? And I just thought it was very appropriate. I thought the pace of the novel uh, warranted it. I also had planned in advance to have a shift near the end uh, away from this. Uh, he once did this. He once did that. It's almost like a a, a present speculative tense too. Uh, and then I, I switched it uh, switched it back at the end. And I, I just liked it. It felt right. It felt good for the pace. It felt great for the voice of this this person. And it, it had a um, it 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 had an aspect of grading and. Being a bit of you know, if it gets away from you a little too much, you go, oh, what did he say? It's, it, it it almost was intentional that I wanted it to have a pace and an energy that you would ride along and then sometimes question and sometimes get pissed off at. Uh, so I, it just felt right. I'm sorry, Iowa State Press. Uh, <laughs> I liked it. Tell us a little bit about using the soundbite as an art form because you definitely paint with sound bites in this novel. Uh, it's just a preference. I think that futurism's deal in insights. Business people write in bullet points sometimes. People want a summary. People want a soundbite. It's not the first time I had seen this kind of pace and staccato approach to things. I think uh, I was drawn to it. It felt right. It's actually really difficult because if you're trying to drop these little wisdom bombs occasionally... That's one thing, to write several hundred pages of, of uh, fast-paced, insight-laden prose, I, I found really challenging to keep it up. I, I remember reading uh, the James Elroy books about the Kennedy assassination, and he had this kind of jazzy, very fast-paced prose thing, and each, each sentence was, was filled with information and filled with characterization. I just liked it. Parts of DeLillo get like that. Uh, it, it has a kind of... Um, it it just has an edge and a pace that I liked. Um, making each sentence like that interesting proved quite difficult, though. Tell us a little bit about the notion of identity in this book, because it's pretty slippery. There's how people present themselves, how they view themselves, how they respect is offered, but it's it's not felt, but it's offered. Tell us a little bit about how you discuss identity in this book. Well... Identity is directly tied to, to, I think, vocation, who you are, what, what is your idea of who you are, and what, what is your idea of who you want to be. And I think people are, are working on uh, several planes at once, and in, in the world of the futurist, most people have this superficial identity up front, and it's a person as a brand. Here's who, here's who I am, here's what I represent, here's the types of things I wear, um, look at my tiny little eyeglasses. Look at my all-white suit. Uh, look at the things that say I'm special and I'm different from someone else. So I think identity in this book for a lot of the, the characters, Ancillary and, and Maine, is almost like human being as brand. And certainly isn't the way it is. It's clearly superficial, and, it, and maybe it, it, it reflects some aspects of who you think you ought to be. But But then the true identity is revealed through choices that a character makes, uh, not through 
the clothing they wear or the conferences they attend or the restaurants they go to. Or what's on their iPod. What's on their iPod, Which exactly. Is, I think that was one of the best lines is that uh, the, char- the character who feels that he dis- he's defined by his iPod. Yes. It's the playlist. I, uh, I like that section a lot. It's where he, he, he visits a, a boy in Milan who uh, was anti-American and got injured and Yates feels somehow responsible for this and makes an attempt at, 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 at uh, mending of fences between cultures and nations and he buys the boy an iPod and he loads all of his own music into it. I actually had a coworker from Brazil do that to me. I had so much bossa nova music and I didn't know how to erase it. So for like months, I was just listening to uh, João Gilberto and all, all, you know, which was wonderful. But you know, at a certain point, I needed to switch. So he visits this boy in the hospital, and they have this moment that that if I if I could rewrite it, I would add a sentence because it gets borderline sentimental. Where he he riffs about here's a product you know designed in America, made in China, purchased in Italy, uh, filled with the songs that represent my life, and he hands it to the boy, and he and rather than selecting any individual song. He hits shuffle and lets the fates of the music iPod gods determine what song the boy should hear. And I thought it was a really nice moment. And in retrospect, if I could go back, I would add one sentence and have the boy look at him and say, I hate Wilco, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I just because it's everything else in the book had been ironic and, and shied away from sentimentality. And I thought that, that was getting a little too nice and it creeped me out. You uh, spend a bit of time talking about one of history's most famous futurists, Nostradamus. And you describe a ritual in there, Nostradamus's ritual for what he did before he predicts the future. Could you tell us, was that real? That was real. Describe that to us. This is a fascinating bit of uh, information. I will try to to, uh, paraphrase uh, to the best that I can, but Nostradamus would uh, have a bowl that he would heat up with certain oils in it, and it would be infused with oils and other types of herbs, which are, I think we could be safe to say, had some kind of narcotic in them as well. He would wear a certain robe. He would bathe. He would abstain from sex for uh, at least four or five days, I believe. And he would uh, write with the, the quill of some kind of bird, specific kind of bird he would use to dip into the ink. And he would get in some kind of prophetic heat and sit there for, for an overnight period and just scribble furiously as these notions came to him. And when he was done, he would, um, I guess, rip them all up and put them in a hat. I don't know if it was a wizard's hat or not, and uh, and throw them up in the air. And he would record them in his uh, his quat- quatra- various quatrains and, and his prophecies in the order that he picked them up. So it was pretty interesting. Nostradamus, I had learned quite about it, quite a bit about it in, in researching the book. He was a doctor. His, I think his wife and children died from the plague that he was spending most of his life fighting. So that was kind of interesting. And he had his click moment where he uh, prophesied the the death of uh, which king? Oh, well, it was a king who got lanced through the eye. Uh, he was a, a favored uh, prophet of the court, and he, he predicted this, and, and it, it came to pass. So he was suddenly as hot as Faith Popcorner Mal- Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, and it, again, he, he was just a, a fun character to have and, and a fun character for a uh, psychotic conscience figure to assume, to, to uh, harass Yates with. You create a country in your novel called Bassar, 
stand-in for Iraq. Tell us a little bit about what where what you're doing and where you're going with that, because it's an interesting. You've made a couple differences to make it a little bit more tolerable. Some were uh, some were done just because of a book like The Futurist, which is tapping into current events. The danger there is that if I would have tapped into something so specific and so constantly changing, and I got it wrong, I think that would have been a bad a bad choice. So so there was certainly just a safety factor there. And I also like the idea of inventing my own place and, and creating my own rules. I uh, stumbled upon a thing during my research called Destination Baghdad. And this is a, a real-life event that never happened. Uh, but several months after American troops went into, uh, into Baghdad, there was a website popped up, and it was Destination Baghdad, and it was uh, big businesses back in Baghdad come to the expo. And, you know, Halliburton, Bechtel, all of these these major conglomerates w- would be represented. And we're here to show you that everything is going to be back to normal in no time, and this is a place to invest in the future. So I called my friend up, who was an art director. He lives in Oregon, and we, we work once in a while, and he lives in Italy, and he's all over the place. And I told him about it, and he said, uh, we got to um, rent some Prada suits and ponytails and mirror sunglasses, and we have to go to Destination Baghdad. We must do this. Uh and did you go? We didn't go. My wife, my my wife supports me, but not to the point where um she's gonna let me go to Baghdad for the sake of fiction. Uh, maybe now that I'm published and she sees that you can actually make money doing it. But at that point, there was no guarantee of money, so she wasn't gonna leave. Let me leave two children and and go to Baghdad. It's a recently democratized Arabic country. Recently democratized, I thought was a pretty funny way of putting it. I don't get a little too more specific than that. But he does go to a, a, a destination Baghdad-like event in Basar. And again, it, it seems borderline farcical, but when you look at the reality of what's going on in Iraq, uh, something like destination Basar is clearly uh, something that could happen. And Stage scripted press conferences are nothing new to the current administration. Having someone, an undersecretary of uh, public affairs representing America to the third world is nothing new. So I, I thought it's I could have what I would have done had I gone to Iraq or used Iraq and been able to play with it a little bit more to my own means and still still make it a kind of funny and powerful moment at the same time. This being a novel titled The Futurist, you do t- spend a bit of time talking about the future and have some interesting perceptions of the future. At one point, your character feels nostalgia for the future. And you also have a lot of fun with the language. Um, the futurist never saw it coming. And there's the line about his father, how his father had died today or yes, tomorrow or yesterday. He wasn't sure which because of his where he was on the dateline. Yes. Tell now, us a little bit about the time in the future in this book. Well, that for, the, his father, the futurist's father died tomorrow, or was it yesterday, was a little bit of a riff on Camus and the Stranger, uh, Mother Died Today, or was it yesterday? Um, I thought, had a little fun with that, but it's, he, he, where he is when he finds out that his father died is, a, is an island that straddles the international dateline, so yesterday and tomorrow and today get blurred. Clearly, this is about a society that had been preoccupied with what's next for a long time, uh, because it was fun to think about the present, again, in the 90s was 
wonderful, and every new day seemed to promise something great if you were into making a lot of money and, um, and being an American in 1998. And suddenly, the society that was transfixed by what's next became paralyzed by, by the present, and rather than wondering about what's next, I, I felt like a lot of people were going, what now? We had this kind of malaise and weren't sure, questioning what we were doing with our lives. The stock market crashed. The planes crashed into towers. We were in a war that, that the country was torn over. So there was what was uh, some of the choices about what you were doing with your life and how you felt about your life had been easier, uh, suddenly became more complex. Even though all of those other problems were always there, we were so caught up in the goodness going on here or the good things going on here that we were ignoring other things. The futurists never saw it coming. All of that just, just addressed a, a kind of global preoccupation with what's to come. Uh, people get so caught up in the next movie that's coming, and they look at the trailers and they see the press junket and they uh, look at all the stars' interviews, and then uh, the commercials start to come, and then Entertainment Tonight starts to play the extended version of the trailer that by the time the movie comes that you're so excited about seeing, you almost have an anticlimactic moment when you go in the theater because you feel like you've already seen it before you've seen it. So we have this expectation, and we build upon the expectation so much that by the time the actual moment comes, there's a letdown, and I think uh, it goes beyond film. It goes with anything where you, you think about what's to come too much, it becomes unhealthy. And, and then when it finally happens, there's, there's a letdown, and it's anticlimactic. Um, that's pretty much, I don't know what the answer is to that other than that's an observation. Well, just let's speak a little bit about your future. You talked about your next book. Do we know anything what it is? Are you going to give us a trailer for your next book? Well, what it, what it wouldn't be, I had, I had told you I had done some short stories prior to The Futurist. My last short story uh, was called ooh, Bones Like Ice, and it was published in the Chattahoochee Review. And I liked it quite a bit, and I had the uh, a draft of a novel fleshed out. And it's set in 1871, and it's a small story, and it's not funny. So for the author of The Futurist to pursue that next, I think... Um, from a pure crass marketing perspective, <laughs> might be career suicide move number one. Uh, I love the book. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow that up at some point. But uh, I, I also, in the meantime, stumbled upon a tone of voice and a style of writing that I think I was kind of, kind of born to write. Even though it took me 45 years to, to have all of the Nostradamus-like elements uh, meld together. So it'll probably be a. What I'm doing is compiling. It'll be a domestic satire about what it more US based but I think it will be looking outward as well I don't know I'm compiling that's how the futurist worked I compiled and compiled and compiled themes started to uh, to manifest themselves the character was always there current events then suddenly started to um, fall into my lap and it just the tone of voice came and then when I realized that this futurist should be highly paid and very popular but he should be really bad at what he does that's when everything fell into place. When I knew that he had to be bad and a sham, that was good fiction. If he was an admirable futurist who is doing good, I don't think it would have been a very entertaining novel. And we've been speaking with James P. Othmer. His new novel is The Futurist. Thanks for speaking with us, James. Thank you very much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. 
You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.